This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Uh, I want to talk today a little bit about uh, my personal experience. And I want to tell a story that is um, rather embarrassing. It's definitely not my finest hour. But uh, I trust that you'll be merciful to me uh, despite my weakness and uh, appreciate the, the lessons that I learned from the story. So when I was in college, uh, my college experience was very rich. And I ran cross country for Boston College and I was editor of a newspaper. And I was thinking a lot about uh, the future, my future plans. And I thought, well, maybe I could become a philosophy professor or maybe theology, I wasn't sure. And then I was thinking, well, maybe I could become a priest and I wasn't sure. And, I was dating this woman, and I thought, well, maybe we could get married, but I wasn't sure. And I just was, everything was a big, you know, wide vista of open possibilities. And you may feel the same way now, right? You may feel the same way as I did, that your life is an open book and all these uh, possibilities are in front of you. And that's, that's a great feeling. Um, all that came to a sudden halt uh, when I got a phone call uh, during the fall of uh, my senior year. I was walking back to the dorm, and I get there and I get this phone call. And really there's only two words to the phone call that, uh, that really make any significant difference. And those two words were, I'm pregnant. I was uh, completely shocked. Uh, my uh, roommate in college had been having sex with his girlfriend for all four years, nothing had ever happened. And here I was being relatively good for all four years and, and, and this happens to me. And uh, so I, did what I often do when I'm very upset. I put on my running shoes and I went out into the Boston night and I ran about eight miles, maybe 10 miles. And I remember yelling at the sky. I was extremely upset about this, this whole thing. But then I kind of settled down. I got into phase two of my reaction and phase two of my reaction was uh, to pout. And so I went to the prenatal classes and I was in a bad mood and pouting and uh, that summer, I, I rather than uh, the summer before, I taken a creative writing course. So this summer, rather than doing that, I went and I was painting houses, and so I was you know sweating out there painting all these houses. And my my roommate Chad, he wrote to me, emailed me, said, "Well, how's your summer going?" I said, "Well, I've been doing a lot of painting," and he goes, "Well, that's great. Are you uh, doing you know watercolors or?" Are you <laughs> and I said, "Well, I'm painting in a uh, it's a domestic scene." Uh, <laughs> Bichromatic, very large surfaces. Um, <laughs> so he kind of got the idea. Um, I hate to say this, but it's true. I even pouted uh, when my wife was in labor. So we, we go to the hospital and, and she's in labor and you know she's obviously not enjoying the experience. And I, I said, um, honey, come on, get a hold of yourself. You know, you gotta really, this is, you're going crazy. And anyway, guys, do not do this to your wife. This is, this is a super bad idea, okay? You just be really nice during labor. Anyway, um, all of a sudden though, uh, my wife, uh, she was hooked up to this fetal heart monitor and all of a sudden the fetal heart rate went lower and lower and lower and then all of a sudden it flatlined. Alarms went off, doctors were scurrying, they, they moved her immediately into the uh, emergency uh, C-section room. And they got up the scalpel and they, you know, prepped her really quick and they got out and they were just about to cut her open and rescue the baby who was about to die. And, you know, when all this happened, it was only then, I hate to tell you, that I really realized how devastated I would have been if 
you know, she had died, if the baby had died. And all of a sudden the baby's heart rate came back. And then with just a few minutes later, really about 10, 15 minutes later, uh, Elizabeth was born. And she was perfect. She was so beautiful. I used to think that all young parents get compliments on how beautiful their babies are, but that's not true, actually. Uh, Elizabeth got all these compliments, and everyone would say, oh, your baby's so beautiful. And then our next child, John Paul, not a word. <laughs> People would see him and be like, oh, baby. Oh. So that wasn't good. That was good. Um, but that was the happiest day of my whole life. And it still is. And I don't know if I'll have a happier day than that at some point in my life. But up to this point, it is the happiest day of my life. Uh, now, about 30 years ago. Now, what did I learn from this whole experience? Well, I, I learned a lot. And that's kind of what I want to share with you today. I want to share with you something about the good of procreation. And I wanted to talk about really three different elements of this. And the first has to do with the link between procreation and erotic love. And secondly, about the link between procreation and friendship with spouses. And then thirdly, about the link between procreation and going to heaven. So I'm going to talk about all three of these. So the first is about the link between procreation and uh, erotic love. So I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, have read Plato's great work, The Symposium. And if you remember The Symposium, there's a very famous speech in The Symposium by one of the characters named Aristophanes. And Aristophanes imagines that in the beginning, human beings were very different than we are now. So rather than just have two arms, two legs, one face, we were kind of like two human beings, like conjoined twins back to back. So we had two faces and four arms and four legs. And we were incredibly powerful, Aristophanes says in the story. And we rebelled against the gods. And what happened was that the gods debated among themselves, well, should we kill these human beings? And they thought, well, if we kill them, then we won't get their service, so that's not good. So maybe what we should do is, maybe we'll split them in half and weaken them and punish them. And then they'll be reluctant to rebel against us again. So that's what they did. They cut us all in half. And Aristophanes said, it's from this division that erotic love arises. You desire to be completed by your other half. And we still talk about this the way we talk about spouses today, right? Sometimes you've heard someone say, well, you know, where's your better half? You know, meaning your spouse. Or people say that they are, when they break up, that they, you know, it's like there's one thing and then it's, it's broken in half. Or Jerry Maguire says, right, you complete me. All these are echoes of Aristophanes' insight. And I think it really is an insight. You might put it in less poetic terms and say, what erotic love is, is this drive to be as fully united with the person you love as you can be. And that's why people that are deeply in love desire to get married, because they want to be as deeply united as they can be with the person they love. They want to be united in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, until death do us part. That's, that's the kind of deep, deep unity that they want with their spouse. And marriage does provide that to a degree. And the sexual union in marriage provides that to a degree. But what I didn't realize until I had my own kids is that a child provides that in a superlative degree. It might be for that reason that Augustine talked about children as one of the goods of marriage. That when you have a child with somebody, you are united with them in a permanent way. 
That is to say, part of the man and part of the woman unite to make the new baby. And each one of us is really a walking monument to the unity that did exist at one time between our mother and our father. Now, tragically, sometimes that unity ends up falling apart. So my wife uh, comes from a, a family of divorce, and so her parents divorced when she was like, I think she was six. And so they, you know, they worked together for raising her for most of her life. But even in that case, even in the case of divorce, uh, my in-laws were actually still united through my wife. Because even though they didn't like each other anymore, it was still the case that they were united in loving her. They were united in working for her well-being. They were united in desiring what's best for her. They were also united in terms of their emotions. And this happens to almost all couples that have children. So unless you're a total psycho, right, you'd love your own child. And we talk about a natural love. That, that's about the most natural love there could be, right, loving your own son or daughter. And so almost always, sadly not always, but almost always, both parents love their child. And this brings them together in a very deep way. Not just physically, of course, they're, they're unified in their DNA, but emotionally. Because if your child's doing well, well, you rejoice together in your child doing well. When my wife got her master's degree, both parents were there. Both of them were happy. Both of them were celebrating. And if things are not going well for your child, well, you're united in that. Right? You're sad about your child getting sick or getting broken up with or whatever your child's going through that's not good. You're united in your sorrow over this bad thing happening. So there is no way to realize the dream of Aristophanes perfectly. That is to say, we can't really be entirely united with the one that we love, nor really, if we think about it, would we want to. Dante imagines lovers united physically for all eternity, but as you remember from reading your Dante, that's not in heaven, and it's not even in purgatory, it's in hell, right? Paolo and Francesca are physically united forever in Dante's Inferno. So we don't want that, but children are a way of realizing an incredibly deep unity with your spouse, a unity that lasts as long as that child's alive, a unity that really brings you together. Because another way you're brought together is this. When you have a child with somebody, you two almost certainly are going to love that child more than anybody else, right? More than the grandparents, more than friends, more than anybody. You two are united in love for that child. And that's something extremely beautiful. The second way that I think procreation is a deep good has to do with friendship. I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, have read Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. And so you remember his account of friendship. And Aristotle says that the good life cannot be had um, without friendship. Even if we had all kinds of wealth and power and fame and whatever else, if we didn't have real friendship, our lives would really not be fully human and would not be fully flourishing. Now, Aristotle, as you recall, distinguishes different kinds of friendship. Remember, he talks about a friendship of pleasure, a friendship of utility, and a friendship of virtue. Now, I do think that children don't add much to a friendship of pleasure. If you and your spouse were just into partying and you wanted to you know, go to Las Vegas and swing from the chandeliers and do drugs and whatever, having a baby there on board is not gonna be a, enhance that too much, right? So that, that, seems, that seems clear. But as you know, Aristotle says that a friendship with pleasure is the most superficial kind of friendship. It's, it's the least satisfying kind of friendship. And it's the mo one of the most transient kinds of friendship because what we take pleasure in shifts over time. 
right? Think, say, college students 10 years ago, right? When you're 10 years old, 11 years old, right? What did you take joy in, right? Is it exactly the same thing you take joy in today? Or, as I think it's probably true, have you matured? And even though you used to, I don't know, like to ride your bike around the lake or whatever, probably now you take pleasure in conversations about important topics or something. You take pleasure in something deeper than you used to when you just were a child. And as you mature, you'll take pleasure in still deeper things. When you're 30, when you're 40, when you have kids, there's pleasures that come along with that that you haven't yet experienced, but hopefully you will get a chance to experience it. Right, the pleasure of having someone depend on you. And if you become a parent, you'll have that, right? Your son or daughter will be utterly dependent on you. And what that does normally, if you're a halfway decent person, is it brings out the best in you, right? Because you love this child and you don't want the child to be hurt or you know, be disadvantaged. So it brings out what's best in you and makes you a better person. Now, friendship of pleasure is not really enhanced by having children, I think that's true. And is friendship of utility enhanced by having children? Well, I would say normally not so much, right? If you think about, say, utility, think about money. Are your kids going to make you money? Well, it's possible. Maybe you'll have the next Justin Bieber, right? Maybe you'll have the next Taylor Swift. It's possible. The odds are not in your favor. It's not likely. Almost certainly your kids are not going to make you money. Almost certainly your kids are going to cost you money. Now, you might be able to get a little utility out of writing a braggy Christmas letter to your friends and be like, my daughter Caroline is so amazing, and she's a, you know, a cheerleader, and she's got a 4.8, and blah, 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 and you can brag about her. But outside of that, uh, children don't really deliver much on utility. But I don't think that should worry uh, us too much at all, because as you know from Aristotle, a friendship of utility tends to be a shallow kind of friendship. It tends to be almost like a business relationship. So if we were friends of utility, it's like, well, I have a car, so that's why you like me and I drive you around. And then you have a computer that I use and a printer I use, so that's why I like you. And so we, it's almost like we have this unwritten business contract. But the trouble comes, of course, when my parents give me a new computer printer for my birthday, say. Well, if that happens, I don't need you anymore. I've, if that's the only reason we were friends, I, I got what I needed now, and so see you later, right? This happened to me in high school, actually. <laughs> So when I was in high school, my, um, I was one of the first guys to get my license. So as a sophomore, I had my license the whole year and I had all these friends and Chris, hey, let's hang out. Let's, you know, et cetera, they call me all the time. And then the next year they all got their licenses. The phone didn't ring at all. It was just, as, they were gone, it was terrible. So that's a friendship of utility, right? They, they just wanted me because I had a license and I drove them around. So friendships of utility are shallow. They tend not to last. They tend also not to be very satisfying, Aristotle said, because if we have a friendship of utility, what I really like about you isn't you, right? What I really like is your computer and printer. That's what I really like. And what you really like about me isn't really me. It's that I give you rides around and I have a car. So it isn't really a care for the other person or a concern for them. Now, if you remember your Aristotle, he holds the best kind of friendship is a friendship of virtue. And in the friendship of virtue, if we have a friendship of virtue, I like you because of who you are. And virtue is a lasting characteristic, right? To have it. It's not something you lose just overnight. You're going to have your virtues. If you have virtue, you're going to have them. Now, it's possible, of course, theoretically to lose your virtue. But in general, it's long lasting and it's a habit. So you tend to keep it. So if I like you because you are wise, 
you are compassionate, you are temperate, you're courageous. If I like you because of all these virtues you have, and you like me because of all the virtues I have, well, you like something in me that's very solid and long-lasting, not like what is, happens to be useful at the moment or not useful. Because if that's all our friendship is based on, well, then our friendship can evaporate overnight. Whereas if our friendship's really based on, I care about you and I really like you for who you are, well, that is something that's very lasting and something very deep. And Aristotle therefore called this the best kind of friendship. So how does that relate to children? Well, I don't know if any of you have taken care of infants, but if you have, you realize that taking care of an infant is a lot of work, right? You gotta change diapers and you gotta keep them swaddled and then they start crying and then you gotta walk them around. Then you gotta nurse them or you gotta feed them with a bottle and you gotta give them a bath and a little bathtub. There's all these things you have to do, right? And good parents, what they do is they repeatedly do kind, loving, virtuous acts for their child over and over and over and over and over and over again. And the more they do that, the more they grow in virtue. So becoming a parent doesn't make you by magic become a virtuous person. But I would say that becoming a parent is an unbelievably great opportunity to become a person of virtue. Because if you are a normal person, you're gonna love your kid. And all kids are very vulnerable and needy. And so it naturally elicits from you these kind, patient, loving kinds of acts over and over and over and over again. Moreover, it strengthens the marriage in another way. As my wife repeatedly does these kind, loving acts for our children, and as I repeatedly do these kind and loving acts for my children, we grow to admire each other more because I see her up at three in the morning nursing a baby, doing all the things that she has to do. And she sees me getting extra jobs, working, trying to make ends meet for our family. And so does that mean I'm perfect? Of course I'm not perfect. She's not perfect either. But we're way, way, way better than we ever would have been if we didn't have our children. Aristotle defines friendship as uh, involving a number of elements. It involves shared activity. So we can't really be friends unless we share some kind of activity together. And it involves a shared emotional life. And if you're friends with somebody, uh, it involves uh, making the same choices as your friend. And you can see how if you have children together, you have built-in shared activity. In fact, shared activity for a lifetime, right? First you're taking care of an infant, and then a two-year-old, three-year-old, kid in high school or grade school, high school, kid in college, it never stops, right? I have kids out of college, and I'm still, you know, helping them, driving them around, doing different things for them. So you have built-in shared activity for life, and you have a built-in shared emotional life. Aristotle says that friends share in each other's distresses and enjoyment. And you have that when you have kids. So one of my kids has uh, learning disabilities. And so when she was uh, a little girl, when she was in grade school, uh, we took her to a kind of counselor. And the counselor said, oh, your daughter, she's, she's never gonna be able to, she probably won't graduate high school. She's really, you know, she just has serious learning disabilities. So you better prepare her for, you know, not, not graduating high school. And we you know we weren't very happy to hear that, of course. You know, and, uh, and so we really gave her like tons of extra help, right? Like helped her with her homework and tutoring and all kinds of stuff. So she ended up graduating from high school and next month she's graduating from college. 
So that counselor was uh, obviously completely wrong. But in terms of this point I'm trying to make, um, my wife are gonna, and I are going to rejoice in a special way over her graduation. Right? We're going to share in a very deep joy because we shared in all the struggles and frustrations and counseling and this and that and tutoring and all the things we had to do to get her to where she is. And that is a deepening of our friendship that is really hard to describe. So Aristotle thinks that part of friendship is, and having kids is that it will make divorce less likely. And in that, he's right. So he has this, this line in the Nicomachean Ethics about childless couples being more likely to divorce. But that's been actually borne out empirically. There was a, a book by a guy named David Books called The Evolution of Desire. And in that, he cites a worldwide study of 46 countries. And in it, it found that couples that had no kids at all had about a 36% likelihood of divorcing. If you have one kid, it drops to about 24. If you have two kids, it drops to about 16% worldwide. And if you have four or more kids, the likelihood of divorce was less than 4%. Very, very unlikely. And I think I know from personal experience why that is. Because all marriages have challenges and ups and downs for the simple reason that all marriages are made up of two imperfect people. So of course, things are not perfect. You have two imperfect people, it's gonna be imperfect. But whenever there's trouble in a marriage and you have children, you have an extra incentive to make it work. Because your marriage is not simply about you and your spouse and how happy you happen to be, how happy she happens to be, or he happens to be. The marriage is wider than that. It concerns more people than that. So if I get in a big fight with my wife and I'm really upset, I might leave the house, walk around the block, cool off. But then I think, well, you know, Mary's at home and she probably needs help with her math and I probably go back and, you know, George is there. Well, he, he needs help too. And I can, and so you have this extra, you might say you have an extra reason to love your spouse because your spouse is not only your husband or wife, this person is also the mother or father of your shared children. And so you have this extra incentive to be the best spouse you can be, an extra incentive to make your marriage work, an extra incentive to try to stop those bad habits that drive the person crazy. And they have the same incentive for you. So Aristotle was right that having children together is going to lower the likelihood of divorce. Finally, I want to say a word about procreation and heavenly happiness. Jesus was asked uh, by the rich young man, what, Lord, what do I have to do to enter eternal life? And Jesus' first answer to him had to do with uh, obeying the commandments. Right? The rich young man said, well, I've obeyed these commandments since my youth. Well, that's great. The rich young man's doing pretty well if he's obeying the commandments since his youth. I've always wondered whether that was a truthful answer. I mean, how many people can really say, right, they've obeyed all the commandments since their youth? I don't think I can. Maybe you can. You look like you can. You look like you're a really good person. But maybe you can. Other than her, probably all the rest of us aren't in that situation. But I will say this, that having children actually helps you obey the commandments. So what are the commandments? There's a bunch of them, of course, but the first one is the most important. I, the Lord, am your God. You shall have no gods before me. And the first one is first, I think, for a reason. I think it's the most often broken of all of them. I think that's the commandment that people break the most often. There's something else that they consider ultimate. And usually that something else is them, right? They are their own little God. 
right? They are like Adam and Eve in the garden, right? That they're going to eat the fruit and become like gods. The atheistic philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre said that uh, human nature, such as it is, he denies human nature in a way, but in a way he affirms it, uh, he said, uh, man is the desire to be God. And that's kind of striking coming from an atheist, right? He thinks there is no God. But he said, man is the desire to be God. And I think he was right in that. I think that's what original sin is. We all want to be God. But becoming a parent is a way of, uh, if not shattering that self-idolization, at least make a good, a good dent in it. Because in fact, when you have a child, you are not God and you realize you're not God. You realize you're not God in all kinds of ways. First of all, you typically don't even decide whether you're having a boy or a girl. And I say typically because you can imagine adopting a child. Okay, you choose to have a son, fine. But you know, if you don't do that, if you don't adopt, then you don't choose. You just get whatever it is you get. And whether you adopt or whether you have a child, a biological child, you don't decide really what kind of child you're gonna get. You can't tell when you get a baby that the baby's gonna have learning disabilities, or maybe the baby's gonna be valedictorian. You don't know. Maybe the baby's going to be a terrific athlete, win a scholarship to go to Notre Dame to play football, right? Go on to NFL. Maybe. Maybe the kid's gonna be totally clumsy. Maybe you're gonna have someone who's incredibly social and everybody loves her and she's, you know, so popular and, and cute and everyone thinks she's terrific. Maybe you're gonna get someone who's just the opposite of all these things. But if you are a decent person, you're gonna love whatever child it is that you get. And you're gonna care for this child regardless of whether they're gifted or, or dis disabled. You're gonna love the child no matter what. You realize, in other words, that you are not God. You realize you're not God too because you cannot control what your children do. And you may think, oh, that's, that's, you say that, but I will control what my children do because when I'm a parent, I'm the perfect parent. I know, I was, I was in your seat. I thought the same thing. Um, but let me tell you, this is a guarantee. You are not going to be able to always make your kids do exactly what you want. Guaranteed. And that too is a good reminder of your lack of divinity. It's a good invitation to humility. Humility, as you know, isn't humiliating yourself. It's not saying, oh, I'm a worm, I'm the worst person ever. To be truly humble means to be grounded. That's what that word comes from in Latin. And to be grounded means to be realistic and to realize you're not God, to realize your kids aren't perfect. And your kids will, I'm sure, provide you with countless opportunities for humility. So I'll tell you, this. I have many stories I can tell you of that in my own life, but I'll just tell you one. Um, when my, uh, two of my sons were little, I brought them up to the Jesuit uh, priest's house with my school, LMU is run by Jesuits, and so the priests had this sort of house, and I was invited up to lunch. And I said, okay, boys, I want you to have really good manners. I want you to say please and thank you. I want you to use your napkin. Don't chew with your mouth open. Oh, yes, daddy, yes, yes. Okay, great, good job. So then um, they get through the meal really well. Please and thank you, napkin, everything's great. And then my son, George, he's two, and he's just getting potty trained. And he goes, Daddy, I have to go to the bathroom. And I said, okay. So I grab his little hand. You know, he's like a little, see the kid, he grabs, like I put out a finger and he grabs it. And we walk out of the, you know, dining room. We're walking the, the restroom down the hall. So we're walking through, you're walking through all the tables and stuff, walking down the hall. And we get all the way down the hall, get to the bathroom door. He goes, well, Daddy, I don't have to go to the bathroom. I said, okay. <laughs> and I start walking back, and I see 
of these brown marbles all through the dining hall that he had left a little trail of debris, let's say. All the way, yes, exactly. So he, uh, anyway, that was embarrassing. That was embarrassing, let me tell you. Now, I was, I was very glad. I had tenure already, so I wasn't super worried. But still, that was not, not my finest hour. So your kids, I guarantee, will do uh, things like that that will humiliate you, that you will realize you're not in control, you're not God, you're not perfect. And that's okay. That's okay. In fact, that's beautiful. I mean, when you realize, when you really know you're not God, that's, I think, when God can really show up. Because you're receptive. You've heard this principle, whatever's received, is received in the manner of the receiver. And sometimes God needs a humble person to really do what God wants to do. And in my experience, at least, kids will humble you. I think kids also help you obey the fourth commandment, right? What's the fourth commandment? Honor your father and mother. I know when I was in college, I was highly critical of my parents, especially my dad. You know, he was in business and I was a Marxist at the time. And I thought, oh, my dad is a businessman. Oh, he's exploiting the poor. He's horrible. He's a terrible person, obviously, because anyone in business must be terrible. I was a complete idiot. Um, but that's kind of the way I thought of him. And then when I became a father, and I was up with kids at night, and I was changing diapers, and I was doing all the things he did for me, and all the things my mom did for me, I tell you, my love and respect and honoring of them deepens so much. Because it's one thing to kind of intellectually know these things, but it's quite another thing when you're going through it yourself, and you realize how hard it is to be a good father, how hard it is to be a good mother. Right, how tired you are, how pulled in 10 different directions you are. It's very challenging. And you can recognize, maybe for the first time, how much your parents did for you. You know, your parents were imperfect, I'm sure. My parents were imperfect. But I realized, you know what? I'm actually imperfect too as a father, despite my best intentions, despite thinking I'm going to be great. In fact, I made a big mistake as a parent before I even got my first child in the door from the hospital. Horrible. So. We're driving home from the hospital, right? And she's in the car seat, so I, I did that, okay? And then I'm unloading all this child stuff. And I, if you don't have kids, you probably don't know this, but kids come with a whole barrage of stuff. Like you have a diaper bag, and you have the, this other bag with a bunch of clothes, and then you've got you know, the car seat. You just got all this stuff. So I'm unloading all this stuff, and I unload Elizabeth, put her on the top of the stuff, and I go to grab something else, and she falls off the pile of stuff. Yes. She screams, oh my God, I was like, oh no, this is not good. She was fine. But I mean, to make a mistake before you even get her in the house the first time, that's not good. That's not good. Um, but again, in making mistakes like that, I realized, you know what? Yeah, I get my dad's not perfect. My mom's not perfect. And I'm not perfect either. <laughs> Maybe I should cut him a little, a little slack. And over the years, I have to say that my love and honor and respecting of my parents has just grown more and more as each year passes. Because raising children is terrific, but also is quite challenging. It comes with its own difficulties and challenges. And now I finally can appreciate what my parents went through for me. And that makes me love them even more. Jesus said something else about salvation, too, in the 25th chapter of Matthew's gospel. And he says there that in the end, that all people will be divided into two groups, right? The sheep and the goats, those going to heaven and those not. And to one, he'll say, I was hungry and you fed me. 
I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And to those, he says, come into my kingdom. And then to those on his left, he says, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. Thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. Naked and you did not clothe me. A stranger and you did not welcome me. And those people go off to eternal punishment. And I'm sure you've heard this story before and I remember hearing it as a child, and I don't remember how old I was, maybe 14 or something, and I looked around the church, and I thought, uh, okay, well, Mother Teresa's sisters, they do this, but other than them, we're all going to hell. Who does this? No one does this, right? Other than Mother Teresa and some, like, you know, amazing, a very, very small number of amazing people actually do all those things, but most people don't. But it was only when I became a father did I realize, you know, a good father and a good mother actually does all those things. Right? If you're a good parent, when the child's hungry, you give that child something to eat. When the child's thirsty, you give that child something to drink. The child's naked, you clothe them. And every child is coming into the family as a stranger, right? You don't know what kind of child you're going to get. But if you're a good parent, you welcome that child in anyway. So maybe the good Lord will look out on us on the last day and we'll see that we too fulfilled his commandment in Matthew 25, precisely through doing our best to be a good father, a good mother, someone who really cared for their children, who did their best, never perfect, but their best. Maybe on that basis, we'll be able to enjoy heaven along with the angels and the saints. So what I've tried to do today is talk about the good of procreation, that having children is an enormous blessing. And I did not realize that when I first became a father. I was terrified. I thought this is the end of my life. But it was really an and to my life. All the beautiful things in my life, friendship and running and intellectual life, didn't end. They continued with a beautiful addition. And having children has enabled me to at least a degree to uh, realize the goal of erotic love, to be as fully united with my beloved as I can be. It has helped me to grow in virtue, become a better person than I was before. And it has helped me to grow in the spiritual life through helping me to better obey the commandments and hopefully make myself more fit for the kingdom of God. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you for the talk. Um, the, near the end, you talked about the Matthew 25, um, the act of mercy, and you talked about parents um, possibly fulfilling that obligation through parenting. Uh, certainly, parents growing perfect through, through um, clothing their children, feeding their children. Um, but one of the things about Matthew 25 that seems to be emphasized is, is that you're helping people who to whom you and maybe this is just my reading of it, but helping people to whom you don't have an obligation, a natural obligation, so that it's like a supernatural act of, of charity. Um, so what do you make of that, where in the case of a parent, it does seem like you have a natural obligation to do those things? Yeah, I think you're right. You do have a natural obligation. And so if you were to fail to do those things, excluding, you know, we can talk about extraordinary circumstances where you actually don't have an obligation, but in a normal situation, yeah, I think you'd be 
doing something seriously wrong. Um, I don't remember, though, in, in the gospel that distinction you were making explicitly, explicitly being made, though. So I don't remember any verse that says something like, well, this is uh, going beyond your natural obligation. It's a supernatural obligation or anything like that. Um, so I guess what I'd say is I'm sympathetic to the objection that our duties to the vulnerable aren't exhausted by being a parent. I think that's true. So in other words, I think that someone who only cared for their own children and just that was it, their little tribe and ignored everybody else that was in need, that I think would be a deficiency. And I do think that, that our obligations to care for the vulnerable extend to those that we can help, whether or not they happen to be our biological relatives. But I also think if Moynihan is right, that our love ought to be ordered. And the idea is something like this, that say as a married man, I have a special obligation to love my wife and she has a special claim on my energies and, and love and such. And then because I'm a father, I have special obligations to love my children. Now I also should love all kinds of other people too. And if I limited myself, oh, I love my wife and kids, and that's it, everyone else I hate, everyone else I don't help, well, no, yeah, that, that's obviously very problematic. Um, but I do think there's a kind of ordering to it, right, that, that there's a special intensity that should exist, I think, for someone who's taken the, the, the vows I have. And that's actually part of the reason I think that a priest or a sister is, uh, is loving in a, in a particularly radical way. So my love as a married man is ordered and, and focused on this wife, on these kids. But a priest, say, precisely in virtue of not having his own wife and kids, has a kind of more universal love. So everyone, in principle, could be his uh, spiritual son or daughter. And, and in principle, too, uh, a greater availability to serve in a really radical way. So I'm thinking here in particular about my the Jesuit who invited me up when my son had that little accident in the Jesuit dining hall. So that, that priest uh, ended up leaving LMU and going to Africa. And so I'd email with him in Africa and he would send me these emails that were unbelievable. He's like, oh yeah, you know, the, the power goes out like for a week at a time here. And so I'm having to, sorry for not writing you back. And then he's writing like, oh, we've got food problems here. So basically we're not getting any more food delivered. So we have one meal a day now for the next whatever. And he writes to me about water being turned off. So we don't have water right now. It's like, I mean, it's like unbelievable stuff. And the thing is, I could never and would never say, hey, what, hey, honey, um, we're, we're taking the kids to Africa. And, you know, electricity's spotty. And, you know, sometimes food's not there half the time. But, you know, maybe no water. But, you know, we're just going to go there with the kids. I mean, obviously I can't do that. So there's a kind of radicality, I think, to a priest or a nun's way of loving. We're all called to love. But I do think if you're married, your love is focused in a particularized way. Whereas with a priest or a nun, it's a more universalized kind of love. Yeah. Other questions? Yes. Um, you mentioned that you wouldn't want to be even to your spouse forever, um, and that it's a punishment for not, and that follows even that like, you won't have your spouse in heaven um, in the institution. Because you speak well, I should I should figure out if this is recorded first because if my wife hears it, I might get in big trouble. Yeah, what I was alluding to was, as you probably know, a scene from Dante's Inferno where Francesca and Paolo are punished for the sin of lust and they're caught up in the whirlwind and they, and basically they're they're sort of together forever in this kind of whirlwind. 
And the sculpture Rodin has a really uh, fantastic uh, image of this, a sculpture of this, where it shows them united together and they're almost kissing but not kissing. So they're sort of, you know, not united but not quite united. The idea, I think, is something like this. Um, the unity that we can have in the body is, by its very nature, a limited kind of unity. That is to say, even if you think of sexual intercourse, obviously no one would want to actually do that like all the time forever. I mean, that's, that's, I mean you want it for a while, but not, not like permanently. And any kind of bodily unity has a sort of natural limit on it, you might say. And I think that kind of unity is very different than the unity you can have through the mind. So the mind is, uh, is finite, but it seems to be much more uh, boundless, you might say, than in comparison to the body, which is much more, much more limited. So yeah, in heaven is there marriage? Well, our Lord said in heaven they aren't uh, given in marriage. Does that mean that in heaven we don't have any special relationships with our beloved? I don't think so. I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is, and this is speculation, but if we think about Dante's Paradiso, uh, in, in, that, in that text, you see all kinds of people that do have a special relationship with other people in heaven. So think about how Dante runs into his great-grandfather, and he has this you know, important connection, how Dante is, is led to heaven by Beatrice, the woman who he loved uh, on earth. So it seems that, that special relationships uh, do exist in heaven, at least on Dante's way of thinking about it, Dante's imagination. And that seems right, because um, in heaven, at least Aquinas thinks that gratitude is part of what remains in heaven. So we're all grateful to God. But a gratitude, of course, isn't limited only to God because, you know, I am grateful to God, but I'm also grateful, for instance, for, to all the people who taught me about God, right? I'm grateful to my friends. I'm grateful to my wife, my kids, etc. So I think the gratitude and the love of heaven isn't um, that it's simply God absent any wider human community. Right, think of the images in scripture about heaven, right? Heaven's something compared to a wedding feast. Well, a wedding feast is primarily about the bride and groom, of course, but it's also a love that extends out to, you know, the in-laws and the groomsmen and the bridesmaids and the friends and the family. It's the whole, whole community together uh, celebrating. So yeah, are there special relationships in heaven? I think there are, and therefore I think that people that were married are going to have some kind of special relationship with those that they were married to in heaven. And frankly, I think that would extend also to people that we're friends with. I don't think that heaven's going to be, you know, you're just, you know, those relationships are now meaningless. That heaven has to do with perfecting the goods that we have, not just utterly throwing them out the window. But that's my view. I'm not sure that's right. Anytime we talk about heaven, I think we have to be a little a little light. Any other questions? Yes. It's great to talk, especially with Dave, obviously, was about parental obligations to children. What obligations do children have in the family? Because I think we usually see them, especially in the West, as kind of receptive of the great religions and thinking about the privileges that they hold in the West. Um, what's sort of the, the side of obligation that you might well, I think when children are really little, they don't have any obligations. I mean, a newborn baby is unable to understand any obligations. It's unable to, uh, you know, 
assess things in a moral way. So as children grow, I think that their general ethical and moral obligations grow. And in particular, if they're uh, thinking clearly, they ought to have great gratitude for their parents. So Aquinas' way of talking about it is he called that piety. So the kind of uh, debt we owe to God, he thinks of that as the virtue of religion, and the debt we owe to our parents is piety, and then the debt we owe to our friends, that's gratitude. Um, but in a broader sense, you'd say all three are kind of forms of gratitude. But in any sense, um, children owe their parents their very existence, and then if the parents raise them, they owe you know, all that had, they had to do to raise them. So I would say there's very serious obligations that children, adult children have to their parents. So if my mother is in need of help, I should do my best to provide her help. My dad needs help, I should do that. I should call my parents if they're elderly and lonely and, and need someone to talk to. I should visit them frequently. I should try to act in such a way that I can make them proud. And yeah, all that is included in, in being a parent, I mean, in, in being a, a child relating properly to, to parents. So I think there are serious obligations. And I think in a way, uh, a failure to discharge those operations ends up leading to an unbelievable impoverishment of the person who fails to discharge those obligations. So what I mean is, if you, a little bit like with kids, if you really love your children, that not just in the future, but in the present is an enormous enrichment and benefit to your own flourishing. And the same thing's true for honoring parents. So, and, and for that matter, grandparents. So for instance, some of you may have elderly grandparents, maybe a widowed grandma or whatever. I would really encourage you to reach out to her and help her as much as you can. You know, call her every week, try to visit her very frequently, try to make her life better, try to really show her love. Because you may be the only, or one of the only people in her whole life who can, who can provide that kind of service. And it would mean a ton, a ton to her. And it's not that hard you know, on, on your, your half to do it. And so whether it's parents or grandparents, I think in particular with parents, because they give you even more. But even with grandparents, I think there's a certain piety, uh, a certain uh, reverence that we should have for, for those that are older than we are, that have gone through everything they went through to, to, to enable us to be here. Because if you're, you know, your grandparents hadn't done that, your parents wouldn't be there and, and so forth. But let's give another round of applause for our lecture. Thank you.